Donald Trump sets the bar very high, but the award for the worst public policy idea of the year goes to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. That's how the venerated David Brooks of the New York Times phrased his opinion about Governor Cuomo's Excelsior scholarship, providing free college tuition for qualifying families at public colleges in New York State. And it was passed on April 9th as an element of the state's budget deal. So is it really free for who? And what's the catch, seeing as there is no such thing as a free lunch? Will it work? Why is this happening now, and why is Andrew Cuomo the one to be doing it? Is it as bad as David Brooks would have us believe? Well, newspaper columnists are paid to spark discussion, so let's have one as I go through Brooks' opinion on this plan point by point with Temple University economist Professor Doug Weber. Welcome to The Crush. Hi, folks. Welcome back. I'm Davin Sweeney, a college admissions counselor who talks to brilliant people about the world of college and college admissions. Uh, and hey, you know, it's been a while since I mentioned it, since I, uh, I asked you guys, please rate this show on iTunes. It would mean the world to me. It really would. Uh, I'm pretty sure you've spent more time rating more useless things in your life. I guarantee it. So hit that fifth star there on the old Crush podcast in iTunes feel great about yourself knowing that uh, it made me feel good. Okay, so um, I'm posting this episode on Monday, May 1st, which is a super huge date in college admissions because this is the date uh, by which students have to submit an enrollment deposit at one of the colleges that admitted them. So this is the date that all of the year's efforts culminate in our, in admissions here, our having either made the class or not wrestling with questions about whether we need to admit from our wait list or are we getting yelled at by our housing offices who are wondering if they have to pack kids into the rafters because we we got too many kids. But the reality for a lot of families is that this issue comes down to money. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of this over the past month from folks that I've been talking to. The truth is that even with some good changes this year in the financial aid policy, uh, namely the advent of the prior prior year uh, policy where colleges can look at a lot more of your financial history than was previously the case in putting together your financial aid package. The fact remains that you never really know what your financial aid package is going to look like until it's in your hand. And once they're all in your hand, this is when you're comparing costs and wondering if the amount schools are asking you to pay will in the end be worth it, which is to say, worth the balance of debt You know that you'll have to repay once the student graduates. In fact, here on Sunday, April 30th, as I record this, uh, which is the day before the deposit deadline, the New York Times put an article titled, Free Tuition in New York State Adds Powerful Pull at Decision Time. And I know exactly what they mean because just yesterday on April 29th, I got an email from a student that uh, I had interviewed that I've been in touch with declining our offer of admission. And here's a, a bit of what he said. He said, even with the tuition assistance that you offered, It's still just too costly. I know that the value is there, but I'm unsure about what I would like to study, and it does not seem to make sense to accrue so much debt. I am attending SUNY Plattsburgh and was offered some merit scholarship money and will also be eligible for the Excelsior Scholarship in the future. So this bill was passed on April 9th, and it's already having a real impact on student decisions, as I witnessed and as I'm reporting to you all. So you may recall during the presidential election season, um, you guys remember that, right? Remember that 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 happened that long ago? Uh, The notion of free tuition was a topic that was hotly debated on the left, and and one of the key sticking points between Clinton and Sanders, such that it seems that uh, Hillary adopted Bernie's policy on free tuition in exchange for his departure from the race. They were both on hand with Cuomo when he announced his plan, so it's safe to say that this is one of the most sort of cherished policy ideas of America's political left wing at the moment. I want to just take two minutes to listen to these voices packaged into a slick video by the governor's office, which has amassed, as of this moment, nearly, wait for it, 1,250 views. I mean, that's basically the Charlie bit my finger of political videos, right? Okay, here it is. Of the game was everybody has a fair shot at success. That is America. 
Parents who never had the chance to go to college themselves, like my mother, dream of seeing their children get that degree. Society promised mobility. You could do better and your children could do better. And the great equalizer was the public education system. That with a public education, you could go from anywhere and wind up anything. You could be Mario Cuomo, my father, born to poor Italian immigrants in South Jamaica, Queens. And you could wind up the governor of the state of New York, all from the public education system. It is basically insane to tell the young people of this country, we want you to go out and get the best education you can. Get the jobs of the future. Oh, but by the way, you're going to be $30,000, $100,000 in debt. College is supposed to help people achieve their dreams, but more and more, paying for college actually pushes those dreams further and further out of reach. New York State is going to do something about it. We're going to start this year the Excelsior Scholarship. The Governor Cuomo's bold new vision when it comes to higher education in the Empire State. The governor wants to make college tuition free for households making less than $125,000 a year. I wouldn't have to worry about being in debt and I'd put me and my family at peace. There are so many people that are limited because of, of the money that they have to pay. The further I get through my college career and I have zero dollars of debt, the more like I'm appreciative and the more Free, I feel. The American dream lives in the state of New York and no one is taking it away. And that's what this program is all about. Okay, so are you crying, slow clapping, both? Ready to vote for Cuomo for president? I think he'd like that if you were, but, uh, you know, is this actually good policy? I wondered as much with Professor Weber, who is a labor economist at Temple University. He's written articles for 538. You may remember hearing about 538 from their economics writer, Ben Castleman, episode seven. Go ahead and check it out again if you need to. He's done a ton of research on higher education outcomes, and this policy is aimed at affecting outcomes like debt upon graduation and employment in the state of New York. So let's just stop here and get into the talk with Professor Weber. Let me encourage you uh, to hang on until the end or just you know skip ahead to about three quarters of the way through past the like 50 minute mark or so, because it is uh, David Brooks' eighth and final point that Professor Weber has the biggest problem with, as he puts it. This one, I think, has the potential to do a lot of harm to people. I spoke with him from his office at Temple University in the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Today, I am interested in talking to you about the Excelsior Scholarship in New York State. Um, yep. So this has been the heavily covered, at least in you know New York area media, plan by Governor Andrew Cuomo to provide free college. That's sort of the 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 topmost headline. Yep. Uh, free, I'll, I'll put free college in quotations. Yes, and as I think the New York Times did in an editorial, put an asterisk next to it. Yep. Um, free college for students. Who I guess as they as they put it there, it's a first in the nation plan, uh, which will be phased in over three years, beginning for New Yorkers making up to a hundred thousand dollars annually in the fall of 2017, increasing to a hundred and ten thousand in 2018, reaching a hundred and twenty-five thousand in 2019. So it also requires, as I understand, that students graduate in four years, yep. and remain in New York State for four years after graduation. Yep. The plan, as they say, it aims to crush student debt. There's that word that I like, the crush. Uh, promote on-time completion, which is to say to get kids out of college in four years, when in fact we talk about college graduation rates really writ large as, as, as happening within the scope of six years. Lots of opinions on this. One group you know, that was a little skeptical about the plan, which I think they said it's going to cost $163 million, said that uh, it's so reckless that no other state has been dumb enough to try it. Whereas the governor called it irrefutably smart. And uh, ultimately, I'd like to know if you agree with him. But first, set the scene for us here. Why are we even talking about this? What's the reality of our national student loan debt? Is it as bad as everybody would have us believe? You know, why are we talking about free college here in New York State in April of 2017? Well, it, it certainly depends on who you ask in terms of, you know, is is it, um, you know, is this a, 
a true you know crisis? Is it as bad? Um, I would say that as with with many things, you know, it's um, it's not as bad as the the absolute uh, most alarmist people like to uh, to make it out to be. Um, and I'll, um, I'll, I'll justify that um, in, in just a moment. It also is a real issue, and especially the, you know, kind of the trend lines that even if I don't think that it is, it's, it's not at disaster level proportions right now, the, the debt situation has been getting worse unambiguously over the past uh, few decades. And so um, it's something that needs to be addressed. Now, when you talk, help, help. Let's help define terms here too. When you say worse, you know, like what, what does that mean? You know, as a share of, 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 of sort of general, you know, national debt, or you know, what's what's a good amount of debt to have, um, either international, I mean, individually or as a or as a nation, when it comes to student loans, you know, how do we how do we set the sort of baseline measure for that? So that's a great question. Um, so. I think in terms of nationally, it's really difficult to know. And I, I don't like looking at the, you know, everybody cites, myself included, the, you know, $1.3 trillion number is the, the total amount of student loan debt. That number doesn't have, well, it sounds big and it's useful in some sense. It needs a lot more context because, uh, you know, it depends on demographic factors like, for instance, you know how many people are college age and and you know shortly past college. Sometimes that number might go up, but it goes up for totally understandable and, and um, reasonable reason. A much better way to frame it is one: the amount of debt that people are um, are you know the average person is carrying right now. When you look at the the average person who has some student loan debt, it's about thirty thousand um, dollars when they when they leave college. That number has been growing, and I think you know that. So we can call that uh, maybe a little more than a car, probably a lot less than a house. Yes. So you know, when I think about debt, I think about those things, right? I think about car loans being one of the main yep. reasons that one of the main ways people finance a thing that they can't afford outright out of their pocket. You know, yep. home mortgages being the other thing, and we don't freak out about that kind of debt in the yep. same way at all. I, I think one of the reasons that people freak out a little bit more about student loan debt, understandably, is because it cannot be discharged in bankruptcy for other sorts of debt if you get into a really bad financial situation then you know that debt um, can be forgiven it's not impossible with student loan debt but it's practically very very difficult well, more impossible than other kinds of, of it's debt much more on, impossible yeah. than other types of debt we view education a little bit differently as as something that maybe we're um, you know more entitled to get that maybe it's something that's more of a right than something like a car. So I think that um, people view um, student loan debt as a little bit more distasteful because some people you know view it as as a little bit more of a of a right. And I certainly understand that that view too. Now. I do think that people don't quite appreciate the you know, kind of investment aspect of this. The value of a college degree is incredible. On average, a college degree pays off many, many times over throughout the course of, of your life cycle. Uh, getting a degree, you're going to earn somewhere around eight hundred thousand to a million dollars more over the course of your lifetime now that's heavily dependent on a lot of things heavily dependent on major um, it's dependent on the uh, the type of school that you go to there are some schools that you're going to get a bigger return to than others it's extremely dependent on whether you actually graduate each year of education is not created equal mm -hmm. so think about uh, someone so a, a college degree is typically 120 credit hours if you compare someone who has 119 credit hours and drops out and doesn't get the degree to someone who has 120 credit hours and gets that degree even though there's only one credit difference having that degree matters so much and the you know there's 
a real chance that a lot of people won't get the degree that um, you know the nationally the six-year graduation rate is only about 60 percent nationally so that's a real chance that you're you're going to start college you're going to take out some debt and then you don't actually get the degree you right. don't get right. that college earnings premium right and this brings me to you know the other way that you that's kind of important to think about um, you know our, our student debt issue is you know what type of progress are people making in terms of actually, you know, paying down their student debt? Having a degree but thirty thousand dollars in debt, that's fine. You know, that over the course of a lifetime, that's gonna pay off. You're in great shape. I would Because I you're would, gonna be hired into a job, you know, based on the fact that you have a degree, which is, you know, increasingly a minimum requirement for a lot of jobs that are gonna pay well. Exactly. And therefore you're gonna have the kind of income uh, at your disposal to, to such that the thirty thousand dollars in debt is is really a doable amount to pay off. Exactly. And and a lot of people, uh, again, understandably, because this is the stage of life they're at, um, that you know, um, a, a degree might not necessarily you know pay for itself by the time you're 30 years old or you know 31, 32. If you're in a really high earning major, it will. But you know, sometimes it might take a little bit longer. Right. And and that's fine. You know, a, an education is a lifetime investment. Um, and so, you know, for for some people, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer for for it to pay off. Now, my point is, is that it does pay off um, on average and even even for, you know, the non-average person, the vast majority of people, a college degree over the life cycle pays for itself many times over. But. For the people who don't graduate, you look at, say, the um, the rates of default on student loans. And, and this is one thing that really bugs me about the, the typical media coverage mm-hmm. of, uh, of the student loan you know, uh, market, that they like to focus on people with $100,000 in debt, um, that you, know, you go to – you read most popular press so stories. So $70,000 more than the average people are liable to have. Exactly. And it's because, you know, these are the sexy stories. These are the ones um, that, you know, are under, you know, that have a, a crushing amount of debt. You know, it's going to be really hard to get out from under. You know, that's understandable. But the problem is, is that that's not representative of the people who are actually having issues, mm-hmm. that the default rate um, of people who have between one and five thousand dollars in debt, so you know a small amount, is twice that of the default rate of people who have a hundred thousand dollars or more in debt, <laughs> and that shocks people. But it's it's because, on average, the type of person who takes out a hundred thousand dollars in debt is also going to med school or going to law school or going you know they are. Uh, you know, in a a program that it's, you know, they're more likely to be a very high earning person. Right. So they'll be able to take care of that debt. Uh, not everybody, but the news likes to focus on those kind of outlier people. Right. Uh, the, the people who got really, really, really unlucky. But the real, you know, most of the problem lies with the people who have a little bit of debt, but they didn't graduate and so now they're, you know, they're earning a high school, you know, graduate's wage, but they have debt that can't be forgiven. Right. And so, you know, that's those are the people who are, you know, more representative of the, the student debt crisis. In my and, mind. and furthermore, in my perhaps, you know, to, to your point here that, that you know, and, and, and relative to the to the to the the tuition plan announced by Cuomo, you know, that if 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 we're talking about people that don't graduate in four years, um you know, they're, they don't qualify for this plan. Um, and the majority of people in New York state don't graduate in four years from, from public institutions. That's one of the, one of the criticisms that will, that I'd like to get into. And I thought I would use as a, uh, uh, as a guide here, David Brooks op-ed, um, Uh which, uh, lays out eight reasons. This is quote, the worst policy idea of the year uh, I'm not sure how this beats out, you know, a host of uh, recent policy wonders from our 
our lovely president, um, <laughs> you know, but Hey, I, you know, I'll hear him out and, and, and maybe you can, you can help convince me. But, um, you know, I want to ask you, is it, is it really that bad? So let me go through these eight points here and I'll ask you to comment on them. Sure. Um, okay. So number one, he says it's regressive. It doesn't help families earning below $50,000, you know, because they're already covered by other kinds of, of state supports, like, you know, the tap, you know, tuition assistance program or other kinds sure. of things. Um, and so the really poor households really just, just kind of aren't affected by this. You know, my immediate impression, unqualified, of course, is, well, they're already covered by other things. Why is this a criticism? I disagree with Brooks there. Um, I'm I'm not saying that free tuition is a, a perfectly targeted plan, but it does help lower income people in part because our financial aid system is very, very complex. You know, the just filling out the FAFSA alone um, is a real barrier to a lot of people who would be first-generation college students. Let alone the CSS profile, which most private schools require as well, which is much more a- complex than the FAFSA. Ab- absolutely. And so um, there, there is a benefit, you know, a, a psychological benefit, but it is there. It hmm. absolutely is there that simplification, like the, the, just the basic message that this is, you know, you don't have to worry about this. If you want to go to college, you're not going to pay tuition. Hmm. There is value in that um, for, you know, even for low income people for whom this might not help that much in a purely monetary sense. And that even if it's saving them, um, you know, a hundred dollars a year, psychologically, it has a much bigger benefit than that. Um, So I take uh, Mr. Brooks's point, but you know, I I, I disagree partially. With so this uh, this this uh, you know, you're an economist. Is, are we talking about barriers to entry here? Yes, absolutely. And this would be a you know, this would be a, a, a psychological barrier to entry that because stu- you know the the issue of student debt is everywhere, um, you know, in the news, kids see this. And, and so, you know, and, and people are scared about well, furthermore, debt. they see the sticker price on, on all the brochures yes. that they get at the college fairs. Absolutely. And, and people are scared of debt now more than ever after, you know, people saw what, you know, what their parents went through in the great recession and what, um, what, you know, what debt, um, not too long ago, put people into a really, really bad situation. And right. so um, I think that, um, you know, just eliminating some of those psychological barriers can be important. And especially if we're talking about something that, you know, as I mentioned before, this is an investment that on average and, and for the vast majority of people will pay off many times over throughout your life you know if if you incentivize people to you know go to college it's it's likely a very good investment all right so point number two is that it doesn't make or criticism number two i should say is is it that it doesn't make a dent in reducing the non-tuition fees like living expenses textbooks travel which for many students are far more onerous than tuition he says Yes, he, that's that's absolutely right. To some extent, you know, so when he's mentioning, say, the fees, you know, that's um, a very, very reasonable point because fees are under uh, the control of the institutions. When it comes to things like textbooks, it, it's a fair point because you know, that is a real cost. Um, it's harder to regulate things like that, it might sound easy to you know to someone who is you know not in the um, higher education sector to say, oh, we'll just pay for all the textbooks. But it's it's not that easy, especially living expenses. This is a huge cost for most people. Most people don't come from families who live right down the street from you know, especially a four-year college. Right. So, you know, living away from home costs money. Mm-hmm. Um, it costs a lot of money, and in many cases. You know these living expenses, um, you know, are much more than um, than in-state tuition, and and this does nothing for that. Right. Okay. 
Third, uh, he says that it doesn't cover part-time students or those who don't complete in four years, as we as we mentioned earlier. So um, the 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 uh, the four-year graduation rate at public colleges uh, right now in New York State is like thirty-eight point seven percent. I say like as if that's an estimation, but no, I actually pulled that off of the <laughs> off the website. Uh, yep. That's the case, um, you know, which is not terrific. Um, and you know, so it's, it it makes sense that, you know, we want to promote completion in four years. We want to promote completion period, but we'd like to promote completion in four years because, you know, you're spending extra money after that fourth year. And it, it, it reminded me that there was another piece that came out sort of coincidentally around the same time in the New York Times by a woman named Meredith, Meredith Kolodner of the, you know, and she's in partnership with the Heshinger Report, I guess, is a, uh-huh. a website that does a lot of, or an entity that does a lot of research on, on higher ed stuff. And she mentioned six things that contribute to not graduating on time. And a lot of them didn't necessarily seem to relate to the cost of college or anything per se. Um, but it made me think that perhaps reducing or, or creating an, uh, a financial incentive to finish in four years as the Excelsior plan is meant to do is really only getting at part of the problem and yes. not the whole thing. And so the six things that she mentioned, and I'm going to go in reverse order because the first thing she mentioned is one's most pertinent, but it's just basic time management stuff. You know, yep. that you get to college, you're on your own, you fritter around, you waste time, and, and before you know it, you're you're not ready to graduate in time. Um, she says you have to join stuff. So social isolation can can take you off track. Uh, she also says switching majors around can, can screw with your timing. Uh, transferring will usually cost you some additional time. Um, the, the standard assumption that students should take 12 credits a semester is too little. You should take up to 15, she says. But then the first thing that she mentions is that working over 25 hours a week while you're in college can also contribute to that. And this is something that gets at, 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 at students' pocketbooks, right? That when you're going to college, um, you know, it costs a lot of money, you know, mainly the, new, the non-tuition stuff, right? The living expenses, the going out, the hanging out, the hopping on a bus to go visit a friend in, in a nearby college town, all that stuff is extra money, you know, that your scholarships and financial aid aren't going to take care of. And so if you're spending time working over 25 hours a week, which is a lot, for a student, then that's going to contribute to you not graduating on time. So, um, so this sounds to me like a, a good criticism from David Brooks. You know that that it doesn't cover yes. these folks. I, I I completely agree. And the the working uh, extra time is is a huge point. The research on this says it's not even over twenty five hours. Working more than ten to fifteen hours is is associated with a significant reduction in the likelihood of eventual graduation and certainly on time graduation. the The problem is that um, you know many students are in a situation where they need to work. You know, for well, and it's these, safe to assume too that furthermore, that, that, I mean that that skews, you know, that correlates directly to probably household income or family exactly. family wealth, right? The, the, the students who have, you know, are not are not going to have their parents dropping five hundred bucks uh, in their bank account every now and again. Those are the ones that are going to be working. It, it, it's, that's exactly right, and that's um, that is one of the reasons why this is you know a little bit more a little bit more regressive because. It's not acknowledging the reality that there are many students out there that if, if you're not going to cover, um, you know, living expenses um, and, and, and all these other things, um, and that's still on the students to cover, then they're going to have to work. Well, to and, then that. The, and then just for, you know, there's that, that list of items there, you know, that's a lot of different things that, you know, a suddenly independent person Yep. has to contend with in addition yes. to learning and doing homework none of those things are necessarily mentioned in that list you know uh, that, that that's that all of those things can conspire to take you off course yep and then uh, you know what 
I know from my wife, the developmental psychologist, a little bit about the, you know, the, the, the concept of the prefrontal cortex and the ability for, you know, students at this age to really plan and think ahead, you know, yep. for future consequences is, is the threat of being on the hook for the price of tuition at a New York State college enough to resolve all of these other issues such that they finish in four years? On top of all that, really exactly what you just said, like this is, you know, this is hard, uh, but even more so for the people that are, you know, usually the the most vulnerable among this population is people whose parents did not go to college, that all those things are even harder for people who, um, who didn't grow up with, with parents who, you know, kind of understood the... Um, the bureaucracy that is the higher education system and that, uh, you know, both of my parents went to college. And so there were a lot of things that were not a shock to me because my parents had been talking about, you know, them my whole life. Um, and then just, just, you know, little things about how to, you know, how to manage your time and, you know, living, uh, living on your own and going mm-hmm. to college and things that I'm sure like, I couldn't even mention now because they're just, you know, you just pick them up, uh, but really made it easier for me because these were things that, you know, I kind of, I didn't have to learn at the same time that I was going to school. Mm-hmm. I learned them from my parents growing up. Right. But for kids who don't have that advantage, then they are having to learn these things simultaneously while going to school and while working 28 hours a week. And right. it, it just makes it that much harder for those students. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, anybody manages to to associate any other kind of programmatic, you know, elements with this component of the plan, you know, to help students yep. graduate in four years, because that in itself just seems to me like a sort of a shot in the dark, but a, a very great, a very, a very nice, you know, political sort of talking point. Um, yep. Because nobody, I mean, everybody agrees. I mean, you know, less than 40% graduation rate is, is, uh, you know, not, not great. Uh, yep. you know, we, but, but if 60% of students are not doing that and some substantial quantity of those students are also benefiting from the Excelsior plan, then maybe it's hurting them more than it's helping. Yep. Um, okay. Next one. And this is, this, this is the one, this is one that's really interesting for me from an economic standpoint. Because I heard this before anecdotally from folks, and I wonder if it's true. He says that, you know, this plan, David Brooks says, as we remind our listeners, we're talking about David Brooks' article. Uh, it is called The Cuomo College Fiasco. I just want everyone to, I want to ring in everyone's ears, is that it demotivates students. And he quotes a Washington Post article saying that as the cost of attending college drops to zero, so does the perceived cost of dropping out. So this is sort of the old, you know, you got to have some skin in the game argument, you know, that even if you're paying 100 or $200 against, you know, and maybe there's a, a measurable limit there against the, you know, cost of attendance of 70000 that that's better than absolute zero. What do you have to say about that? Uh, I don't know. I, I think this one holds a little bit less water. I certainly understand uh, where he's coming from. He's only talking about the, you know, the explicit cost of um, of going to college, you know, right now. Dropping out still has an enormous opportunity cost um, because if you drop out, then you are not going to then that's essentially costing you a million dollars over the course of your lifetime you, let's I'd, I'd like I'd like you to repeat that again that's worth repeating sure so that uh, by dropping out it is costing you a million dollars over the course of your lifetime because you are not going to be getting the college wage premium and instead you're going to have the um, you know the high school. Um, you, there's there's a whole class of jobs. Statistically that, speaking, we say right. Uh, there, yeah, obviously there are exceptions, speaking. but that's of right. course there are exceptions that <laughs> that you know Bill Gates or whatever. Yeah. But 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 you know for ninety nine percent of people shouldn't make decisions based on outliers. That you know most people are not the uh, the the Bill Gates or. Or, or what is it? Uh, Nick Jagger uh, was originally an economics major uh, at the London School of Economics, and then um, dropped out to you know form some little band. Um, but it uh, rings a bell, but I don't know. 
for, I... for him, you know, that decision worked out. But <laughs> I would not recommend most people drop out and uh, and, and form a band. That right. maybe it's going to work for you know one out of uh, one out of a hundred thousand or um, or whatever. But just because it works out really well for that one person. But this is the this is the issue, right? The key word there in that statement, as the cause of attend as the cost of attending college drops to zero, so does the perceived cost of dropping out, is perceived and perception, right? And it's so much of the of the the onus here is placed on the student to to know this, you know, and to and to have an accurate perception about this stuff. Sure. And I think it's really unfair. I mean, as, as much as we do, you know, legally allow, you know, our students after the age of 18 to be adults, uh, the, they're, they're placed for the first time in their life in a position to make a decision, like yep. at all, period, a yep. decision, yep. let alone a decision that is going to impact the trajectory of their entire life going forward. And yep. so, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that it's fair to assume that... that a, we know anything about the perceptions of what students think when it comes to to, to dropping out, um, yep. especially without data to back it up, which yep. I didn't see. Yep. Uh, but also that let's help with the perception then. I I, I completely agree, and and the thing is that um, you know while it's true, I'll just go back to the you know the point that I was just making that there there might be some difference between you know, 100 and 200 versus zero. Most, I mean, it is harped on every day on the news and everywhere you look that getting a college degree is basically a de facto requirement to to get a, you know, a reasonable middle-class job now. I'm sure not every student is aware of it, but the vast majority of them are. And so I agree, like there might be some effect that, that David Brooks is, you know, is, is getting at, but I think it's small, mm-hmm. and there's no way we can test it right now. I, to me, that's a pretty weak point. It is, is you know, it's a, a marginal one at best, mm-hmm. and that that's not something that I'd uh, that I'd use to criticize. This. So one of the, the other one, th- this is the next one. He says that it threatens to destroy some private colleges. Destroy. Says well, he, could, he know, says it, you know that it, you know they the, the, we could have used this money to fend to 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 fund you know Pell grant like programs you know sort of portable you know grants that students can use at any school including private schools but that this plan only favors public institutions which is going to kind of leave you know privates you know dying on the vines I guess there's something to that like this is one where there there might be you know there's costs and benefits to every policy. Um, you know, there's who you're helping and there are going to be losers in any public policy. You know, the old economist adage, there's no such thing as a free lunch, that somebody is going to get hurt. And in this case, by making public colleges more attractive, you are making private colleges less attractive. Ways that this could, you know, hurt overall efficiency. Um, but isn't it true then that we know that in many instances, private education can in many cases beat the cost of public education through the Uh kinds of support that they're able to provide based on, you know, having endowments that they can produce, you know, finances for, you know, support student attendance, you know? And so, uh, I mean, okay. I mean, he says some private colleges, I don't know which ones those might be in New York state. He didn't offer any evidence there. There are many small private colleges. And I do think that this would hurt again on the margin it, it's going to hurt some of them. Right. Um, now, you can argue based with exactly what you just said that that could hurt, you know, that could hurt things on the margin that maybe maybe some students might have been a little bit better off by going to a private college where the class sizes are smaller. They're getting more, you know, more individualized attention. There are are certainly students that had they gone to a private college maybe they would have graduated but if they go to a public one and they have bigger overall class sizes less individualized attention mm-hmm. maybe they wind up not succeeding okay. you can actually absolutely make that argument but i think just kind of like some of the other points here i think that's a smaller point it's at least i haven't seen evidence that this is going to be something that you know, would it, it's not going to kill the private university system. In the yeah, state the private schools, from what I know, they might be they're paying very close attention to this. They're not panicking. They're yeah, exactly. And now they certainly don't want it to happen because 
you know, they'd be better off if it doesn't happen. But it's unlikely in its current form to, you know, to kill them. Do you think as an, as an economist that it'll, you know, what, what will it change about the behavior of, of um, you know, like price setting when it, for, for in private institutions? You know, do you expect that they'll that they'll actually, you know, sort of generally make changes to, you know, their cost structure as a response to this? Or is it just going to be let's let's wait and see and the, you know, the market will kind of sort it out? I, I, I think that. Um, I think a lot depends on what the initial, um, you know, the initial enrollment in this program looks like. Um, if if lots of people take this up and it looks like it's um, something that um, is pushing a lot of people into public colleges, uh, you know, the, its very first year, well, then I think that it will impact you know their price setting very quickly. By anticipation is that with things like the you know the um, requirement that you have to go full-time and all that I think that this is going to wind up impacting far fewer students than people would initially think and so if that's the case oh they say 942,186 families are eligible for this so that's that's initially eligible the question is how many people are going to take it up mm-hmm. because it requires that you go full time. Well, a lot of people aren't or can't do that. Right. The the governor's offices projections in terms of how many people are going to take it up its very first year, they assumed about thirty thousand maybe will take it up its very first year, which is way less than that nine hundred and forty thousand families. Yes. So, you know, if if it winds up being twenty to thirty thousand that take this up their first first year well that's not something that's going to panic the the private universities right if it winds up being a whole lot more then they're going to panic and then they you are going to see some you know some price cutting right so the uh the sixth here that he adds is that the law may widen the gap between the rich and the poor the old matthew effect when when state schools are free more people will apply as more apply selectivity will increase as administrators chase higher u.s news and world report rankings that will exclude students with lower credentials who tend to be from more disadvantaged homes that's going to be very much on an individual school to school basis it is going to be um you know it's going to depend on which schools are close to capacity? Which schools are, you know, if you're a school that's at capacity already, this, you know, might have uh, that effect because they're going to admit the same number of students or they're going to to have the same entering class size next year as they do this year. So if you have more applicants, it just means you can be more selective. Right. But, you know, there's there's a lot of schools that are not at their capacity right now. And so, you know, for them, they're just going to admit more students. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is really going to be, you know, kind of on an individual campus by campus, um, you know, basis. The, the, the schools that are already more selective, they're going to be able to be even more selective. But the non-selective schools you know, are just going to have more students in them. Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, and I don't, again, he didn't offer evidence about this because it's an op-ed and you only got so much, so many inches yeah. on the page, but I mean, how many um, students are, 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 you know, in New York State that are eligible for, you know, the benefits that come with being a state resident are not applying simply because it isn't free? Yeah. I, 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 I would think- argue not very many. I would agree. I would and argue, so in I fact, that, that most students that are <laughs> applying to college in New York State are applying to at least one SUNY school, if yes. not more, including CUNY's, um, because it's it's arguably a much better deal than it's going to be at private institutions. Not free, but it's better. I, I I agree, and so you know, I think you know, to me, this is a it's a tangential point, at right? Least. Okay, so here's one that I'm I'm very interested in. This is the penultimate uh, concern here that he has. Over the long term, 
The plan could hurt the quality of the system, he says. He, and I quote, if New York moves more toward a purely publicly funded model, it may suffer from the slow decay that has hurt many state systems. State budgets are perpetually challenged by rising entitlement spending. Education gets squeezed. The universities will try to claw back the private money with dorm fees, activity fees, and other charges that don't officially count as tuition, but still quality suffers. So this is a, you know, his, he's showing his uh, conservative cost here, you know, but isn't the problem, um, as you addressed in an earlier piece for 538 that you wrote called fancy dorms aren't the main reason tuition is skyrocketing because that's one of the main reasons, one of the main things that people like to trot out as, you know, the problem, right? Uh, oh, my dorm has a, you know, live in masseuse, you know, uh, that's why it costs $70,000 to go there. Uh, you pointed out that the system isn't publicly, publicly funded enough, you know, and you, you created a pretty, there was a, there's a great, and I'll link to it, but there's a, a great uh, chart that displays how poorly uh, educational uh, systems of higher ed have been funded over the years, showing that almost all of them, except for like two or three, yep. uh, have lost funding per student. The question, I guess, so the, the, the SUNY chancellor, she said that if the state invests more, then we can charge less in tuition. Yep. So the current budget for the state, which is what we're, we're talking about, increases SUNY money by 5.3%. And uh, New York State, according to the chart that you displayed in the 538 article, is, is pretty good. The 14-year the, the, the trend of higher ed funding only decreases overall by about $400 per student, which puts it near the bottom of the list of states defunding education. Colorado yep. is, is at the top with almost a one-for-one replacement in per pupil price and tuition increase versus per pupil cost decrease in state funding. Yep. You know, and only modest tuition growth in in, in uh, New York state. So all that said, does this plan address losses in state funding support? You know, is it sort of shifting things around? Is it, you know, it doesn't seem to necessarily be getting at the root cause of it, which is that the tuition is going up, the college cost concern that Cuomo is uh, fire breathing about at the lectern is really a function of our own priorities as voters in New York State, you know, when it comes to what it is we want to see our tax dollars uh, finance. So, so I, I, I tend to, you know, agree with, uh, with you on this and, you know, thank you for referencing my, uh, my 538 piece. It's a great piece. Um, I'd use it before. <laughs> thank you. Again, I take Mr. Brooks's point. Um, I, and I think it's, you know, a, a tangential point. It could affect some universities in the way that he's, uh, that he's mentioning. So basically he's just saying that the financing model is all screwed up and this is not going to help anything. Yes. It's also true that you know, the financing model uh, over the past uh, you know, several decades has led to a decrease in, um, you know, in state funding for education. And so this can be viewed as you know, a little bit of a correction of that in a reinvestment um, or replacing some of the money that you know, has been lost over, you know, over the past several decades. And so uh, for the good of the order here, there are three states that are in the black here. Um, North Dakota, Alaska, and Wyoming. Yep. Now I wonder yep. what those three places have going for them. <laughs> I, I I am not sure. Um, uh, but... I'm going to go with oil. Uh, yes, that Montana right. is is in the is in the, the the red, but just barely, and then New York yep. is right right below them. It's one of those things that you know this it could have a negative effect in the way that he's describing, but it also could have a positive effect in the way that I described in the um, in the 538 piece, in that part of the reason that we've seen tuition go up is because of this divestment from states. And so, you know, to the extent that we are having a reinvestment, that that could put, you know, at least some, some downward pressure on tuition increases. So it, the fact of the matter is, I mean, this is a reinvestment. Yes. You know, I mean, this is, as, as I think they said, it was going to cost $163 million or something over the course of the three years that it phases in, you yep. know, the, and I, I suppose Brooks's concern is that this isn't the right kind. Yes. And, and I, I agree with that. And I think um, you might not agree like, that, that, that the right kind is the one that he wants, but, yes. but you agree it's not the right kind of reinvestment that we're looking to. Yes. Produce. And, um, and I think 
his eighth point is I can't remember from from the article. Oh, it's I coming know. up. Yep, I think this is the big one that I've. Uh, so the the eighth about. point is that the law will hurt its recipients' future earnings. That yep. students who receive free tuition for four years have to remain in New York State for four years yep. after graduating, or pay the money back. This means they won't be able to seize out of state opportunities during the crucial years when their career track is being formed. They'll be trapped. Trapped, he says, in a state with only one really expensive city, that's my hometown currently, of New York, and other regions where good jobs are scarce. I assume he means places like the uh, city where my employer, the University of Rochester, is located and uh, nearby neighbors like uh, Buffalo, Syracuse, Albany, etc. Yep. This is... The big negative point. Uh, one of the this. So I, I mentioned you know a lot of other uh, a lot of Mr. So he Brooks. saved other the points, best for last. Yeah, I, I said a lot of Mr. Brooks's other points I thought were marginal or tangential at best. This one is real. This one I think has the potential to do a lot of harm to people. Uh, so let's talk that, about that harm. But I'm curious, why do you think he put it in there? My guess is that you know he he wants the headlines of free college, but then. Um, people in the in the legislature say, well, this is going to cost a lot of money and we have certain goals and we um, we want, um, you know, if people get a college degree here, we want them to stay in state. You know, you worry about the brain drain. And so you say, OK, we want to put these provisions in. And he brain probably, drain uh, being the, the, the sort of go to phrase to describe, you know, people yes. with big brains, arguably college educated, draining out of the state to other places and not staying there and contributing to the economy. Exactly. My guess is that um, the governor's office said, well, we're okay with with whatever you put in the bill because the headline, all what we care about most are the headlines. As long as it still says free college, if you agree to it, you know, meeting you, the legislators, then, you know, then that's fine with us. And, and I think it probably um, worked to get some people on the other side of the aisle to actually yes, vote for it. I think that's exactly right. And I don't think they thought much about, uh, you know, the, the policy implications. And I think they're big. But they're policymakers. How could they not? What do you mean? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I won't uh, take that one. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm I'm a labor economist. I study I've studied you know mobility and the premium to mobility, and it's big. And w- one of the reasons that a college degree is worth so much is because it allows you to compete in a national labor market. So it gives you that mobility, which is such a which is such a commodity. Yes. And, you know, you'll say, oh, well, you know, New York is a huge state and it has, um, you know, it, it is itself a big labor market. That's true. It, it, it's not the same as being trapped in Rhode Island. I'll grant you that. But it doesn't mean that it is not severely limiting. Before, before I get to, you know, some you know bigger statistics, I'll just anecdotally, um, you know, my wife, before she went back to get her Ph.D., she had a master's degree in economics and she applied, uh, you know, on the, you know, some of those, you know, job sites to something close to a thousand positions mm-hmm. in, you know, the field of economics. She got one offer, and it was in the state of Florida. You know, had she been in the, you know, uh, Excelsior plan, yeah, Excelsior, then she would have been, you know, forced between making a decision of, well, okay, do I stay in New York and be unemployed uh, and potentially be you know a drain of the social safety net of new york or do i move to florida and then suddenly you know have a thirty thousand dollar bill that i have to pay so let me ask you this are there you know understanding that this is that you know first of all mobility has never been a greater possibility for people globally um and that is contributing entirely to you know the growth in the economy that we're seeing now such as it is are there other kinds of state incentives in this country that you're aware of that restrict mobility that have had the kind of intended positive consequence that cuomo is hoping that this plan will generate I would say it hasn't really been. There hasn't been. There's. There's nothing. Because I mean, there are things like tax incentives for corporations not to leave. You yes. know, there there, there are yep. different things like that, right? That, yep. that they're not, but they're not really placed on individuals more than they are on entities. Exactly. Or firms, and to use the economic term, right? There, there's been nothing in my, you know, to my knowledge that you know is similar in in you know the scope or the scale to you know to this. 
Now, the state of Arkansas is proposing a very similar thing for community colleges, that they're trying to make community college free, and they have a similar restriction about being able to leave the state if you take advantage of their community college you know, scholarship. Now, I... You know, for exactly the same reasons, I'm very much against that. And Arkansas is a smaller labor market than New York. So a quick, that's Google, a- quick Google search, however, by the way, 38% of the state's public university students graduate in six years or less, which is uh, which is a, a comparable on par with New York. Yep. And, you know, but the, you know, the labor market in Arkansas is worse than that. And, you know, that it's smaller, you know, it's more limiting. You know, access to a national labor market is more important if you're, coming out of Arkansas, but if you are, if you're coming out of New York. The point is, is that it will hurt earnings. And there's a number of reasons why it could be particularly bad. So one of them is that, as as Mr. Brooks mentions, this is a critical period in, you know, in someone's career. There's a lot of evidence that says that the quality of your early jobs, it matters for jobs decades down the line think about the labor market as like a um, a sequence of ladders so if you start out from a higher rung in the ladder 15 years later you're going to be further along because you started out from that higher rung it's not just hurting these students now it potentially is hurting them for the rest of their lives because they're you know going to be permanently um, you know stepped back in their in their jobs. So does this kind of I mean as far as you're concerned does this negate any of the other positives that might come from this? That's a really difficult question because there's so many variables here that yeah. it's really it'll take really time difficult. to find out, huh? For people who do leave the state, I will, and I think this is a really important point that they are actually strictly worse off because they took this scholarship. It, it, it might be tempting to say, well, no, they're just they're just as well off because they would have you know, taken out a loan beforehand and now they're just given that loan back. So you might say, oh, well, you know, they're they're no better off, but they're no worse off either. Hmm. Except that the loans are different because this is not a federal loan, which and which means that it's going to have worse terms in terms of the interest rate. It's also not going to have any of the benefits and protections that federal loans have. So the federal loan system, you know, one of the the reasons that it, it, that they are so popular is because there are a lot of protections mm-hmm. um, for borrowers that you don't get from you know loans from other sources and so currently though that's that is uh, under review at the the current state of the department of education so we'll we'll see what happens there but yeah that is true but status quo Mm -hmm. um the there's a lot of benefits that um that you know federal loans do we know that right now that these are the 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 terms of what this what these loans are going to look like or what the so so we, we we don't we don't know the exact terms that hasn't been released but it we do know that they're not federal loans. Let's say that you leave the state. You leave the state. You now have a student loan for thirty thousand dollars. Now, if you had not used the Excelsior scholarship, mm-hmm. then you would have taken out, let's just say, the exact same amount in federal loans, and let's say you would have had a thirty thousand dollar federal loan. We're comparing the hypothetical you who did not take this scholarship, and you have thirty thousand in federal loans versus you who has 30,000 in non-federal loans. The the terms, while of course they could be forced to match the, the federal loan terms, I kind of doubt they're going to do that because they're contracting this out to you know a private agency. Many of the federal loan, loan terms the, the government loses money on them mm-hmm. for you know for undergrads. So a, no private agency is going to want to. Another way of saying the government these. actually sort of subsidizes those. Exactly, um, but no private agency is going to want to take this on if they're having to take a loss. It's on. not a good business model. It's not a good business model. So they're going to you know uh, set the terms such that you know they're going to make some profit and. 
many of the terms, like for instance, the um, the biggest one is income-based repayment. The, the income-based repayment sort of caps, you know, the the amount of your you know monthly loan repayment at you know a percentage of your income, so that like you know mm-hmm. you're never going to pay more than ten percent of your you know monthly wage on your on your loan exactly. repayment. Exactly. Um, takes the risk out of it so that, you know, if you um, if you become unemployed or you are in a, a lower income job for some period of time, then your student loan payments go down. Right. If you if you hit it big, you get a great job. Yes, you pay more because it is 10 percent of your um, of your um, income, but you have a lot more money. And so you're able to pay it. And you got that um, and you got the money by virtue of your having been able to you know, exactly. take loans and go to college. Yes. And so that is a huge protection that there is no, to my knowledge, there's uh, no non-federal loan that you know, offers income-based repayment. Right. In large part, one, it, it would almost certainly not be profitable. Even if it were, it actually would practically be very difficult to, to do because if the loan is through the federal government, well, the federal government also knows how much you make because you pay them taxes based on your income. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, like it's very, very easy to administer this type of system because they know exactly how much your payment should be. Whereas for a private company to just just administer that type of benefit, it'd be very, very difficult. There'd be a much higher administrative cost because they would have to independently verify all of your income. So for people who leave the state, they're strictly worse off for having participated in this program because you know it, co- it would have cost them the exact same amount of money. But now they are, you know, faced with non-federal loans versus federal loans. Right. You know, the time around college graduation, people are making long-term decisions often about, well, you know, I've been going out with this person for a long time. I'm deciding, you know, my longtime girlfriend got a job out in Seattle. Should I follow them? Well, if following them out to Seattle is going to cost them $30,000 in private loans, that's going to affect some people's decisions. Andrew um, Cuomo, homewrecker. Exactly. Um, this is a provision that I think is, you know, is uh, you know, potentially very damaging mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how much it actually buys them. So well, it's it, it's interesting also that it's coming out here in 2017. It's a there's a there's a three year phase in process, and in uh-huh. three years there's a presidential election. Yeah, and yep. Uh, yep. it's going to be someone's going to be running, and someone whose last name rhymes with Buomo uh, uh-huh. arguably is interested in this office. And uh, you know, in three years you're not going to have are you uh, economics researching person enough research. Uh, or data available to really measure the effects of this policy, right? No, it's it's. So you're going to have enough. You're you're going to have all of the good political talking points, none and, of the data none, to show whether it's actually worked. Exactly, um, and and you know the the cynic in me says that's exactly how, why it was designed this way, um, and I, I I don't know I. Um, I think that it has, like I said, I think it has the potential to do a lot of harm to a certain type of, uh, you know, to a certain group of individuals. And I don't think it's going to actually benefit the state that much. So, you know, that makes it bad policy. Well, at least we've got, I think, a framework here uh, to begin the conversation so that other states can think about how to do it one way or yes. another. And I, I would, I'm sure that there are a lot that are thinking about this. You know, it's not inconsequential to note that Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were both on hand, you know, at various points when Cuomo was announcing this, as this was a huge piece of both of their policies when they were running for president, both of their, their platforms when they were running for president. Uh, and so there's an energy around this that that is that is wonderful in itself, that there is energy around this. Yes. Uh, but, you know, with anything, with any good idea, you've got to have the good stuff on the ground to, to actually see it through so that it generates the greatest uh, potential good for folks. 
the devil's in the details. As they say. Well, Professor Doug Weber, thank you so much for talking to me, man. I really appreciate it. This has been Absolutely. illuminating. And, uh, and and we'll we'll have you on again to talk about some of your other research. I really appreciate it. Sounds good. Anytime. So, lots to chew on here. Uh, I think that once you peel away the wrapping paper and after the smoke clears from the fireworks and the confetti is swept from the floor, one interpretation is that at its core, this is a reinvestment in our state system of higher education, which is an issue that's in kind of the DNA of this podcast, starting with uh, Billy D. Derizowitz, episode one. Uh, he brought it up as one of the biggest problems that was facing higher education today. So, um, you know, it's still sort of sad to me that it requires all this pageantry to get passed and that while the SUNY system budget increased, as I said, by about 5%, my guess is that the SUNY and, and CUNY systems would rather just have that projected $163 million cost go straight into their budget without the associated program administration dimensions that will accompany it. What remains to be seen in the out years is whether the program details undermine the value of this reinvestment as um, we opined over the course of the last hour or so. Uh, the problem I just can't ever seem to shake when it comes to this governor, and I hear him a lot being in New York City, uh, the mayor and the governor of New York always have a famous rivalry for uh, FaceTime, and uh, the governor is always in here mixing it up, making life difficult for the mayor. And this is absolutely no exception between uh, Governor Cuomo and uh, Mayor de Blasio, that's for sure. But anyways, um, he just, I, I have a hard time believing that anything that he does for the public good um, is why he's doing it more than simply just for the political optics of it. I mean, this guy is a very shrewd politician. He's got to be one of the most opportunistic governors in the country. Um, I can't help but think about you know, this tweet that I have in my mind that uh, his chief of staff, her name was uh, Melissa DeRosa, she tweeted it out and it showed him uh, stopping at the side of a snowy road to help a passenger say to um, change a tire. And I just think to myself, I, I mean, if we didn't have Twitter, would, would Governor Cuomo really be out there you know, changing somebody's tire if he knew that his chief of staff wasn't going to tweet it out and then there were going to be all these news articles about it? I mean, it's, you know, anyways, um, I mean, and I think um, I'm really sorry to say this, but also like our president, I'm not sure Governor Cuomo has a sense of humor. And I, for one, simply cannot trust people who have no sense of humor. That's just a huge red flag for me. I, I can't help it. So anyways, we'll see if the prognostications by people like Professor Weber and David Brooks come true. And if this plan gets any additional changes as a result of the scrutiny, people like Professor Weber and David Brooks and others are trying to give it. Um, linked in the show page are some of the articles referenced in our conversation. If you want to read more on the topic, I've included a bunch of stuff there. Uh, you can get to it on the website too, crushpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes and other places where you can do such things as rate this show. I really appreciate you guys being here with me. Talk to you next time. Spread love. <laughs>